This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Hello, I'm Matt Jolly and this is Politics Without the Boring Bits. Coming up on today's episode, a slight step back from the cut and thrust in the day-to-day of the politics this week. We are looking at the language of politics and the power of taking the language of your political opponents and turning it back on them. Here in the UK, we see it with Keir Starmer talking about taking back control. In the US, the Democrats are reclaiming the word freedom from the Republicans in the battle over abortion rights. Really fascinating. If you're interested in the mechanics of politics and language, a really fascinating listen coming up for you. Before that, of course, because it's Friday, we'll have Night at the Marriott, India Night and James Marriott taking a look at the terrible events in Nottingham and uh, the sentencing of the killer there. And the herd mentality, the politics of the traitors. We'll try not to do too many spoilers. And don't forget, if you like what you hear on the podcast, you can join me on Times Radio for Politics Like the Boris live on your DAB radio, on your smart speaker, or download your Times Radio app. It's Politics Without the Boring Bits, weekdays from 10. But first, as we always like to on Politics Like the Boring Bits on a Friday, let's take a look at what we learned this week. We learned that Asma Mir on Breakfast is now basically living in a carry-on film. First with this... I'm too old to try new meat. You're not too old to try new meat. I mean, that's that's the quote of the week already, yeah. isn't it? Don't put that on your dating website. Yeah. And then she followed it up with... No, you definitely don't want to footlong anything. We learned that Tory Minister Hugh Merriman has got the BBC in his sights. You must have got specific examples of when BBC News has been biased. Give me one. Uh, there was an individual there who would report on it. Neil Buchanan, who I always felt gave one side of the story and not the other side. And here is one of Neil Buchanan's biased BBC reports on the welfare state. This is an art attack. This is an art attack. This is art attack. Talking of outrageous goings on at the BBC. If you wonder what's happened to my tie, uh, so am I, I've lost it somewhere this evening, it's disappeared. We learned that quitter Ron DeSantis loves an old quote. Winston Churchill once remarked that success is not final, failure is not fatal, it is the courage to continue that counts. When really he was quoting not Churchill, but a Budweiser ad, he might as well have said... What's that? What's that? What's that? 
We learned that Keir Starmer's Tony Blair impression could still do with a bit of work. I know, there's one very big difference. I lead my party, he follows his. The difference is, I've changed my party, he's bullied by his party. And we learned that Simon Clark doesn't really understand Titanic. No one likes the guy who's shouting iceberg. Everybody likes the guy who's shouting iceberg. And if anything, if I'd been such a staunch supporter of the Prime Minister outlived by a lettuce, I think I'd be careful about being the guy who's shouting iceberg. And that is what we learned this week. Now, it's time for this. The Columnists with Night at the Marriott, India Knight and James Marriott. I was hunched on my bedroom floor of my laptop, frantically battering away at my column. And we say a very good morning to India Knight. Hello, India. Hi, Matt. Good morning. Nice to have you with us. Uh, and James Marriott's here in the studio. Pretty in pink. Oh, thank you. Yes, I think I am pretty today. Yeah. Not to be too vain. You look fresh-faced. Yeah. Have you been moisturising? I, I never moisturise. I have. Oh, you should. I have naturally excellent skin. Well, I know you need in to. In my opinion, you need to you start moisturising young. That's what I did. That's why I look. Yeah. So well, good now. you look also very beautiful. No, I, <laughs> I feel a bit weird doing this. But... India, India, where do you stand on moisturising? <laughs> um, I think you're quite right. You do need to start young, and then you don't. You know, then there isn't a kind of terrible panic when you're. In your 50s or 60s. Well, saying, what's going to happen if I don't moisturise? I get wrinkly or... Yeah. You I kind of want wither. to be wrinkly, though. Wrinkly and dry. dry yeah, I kind of... You want to be like a walnut. Like a, a little bit, yeah. Walnut. more Certainly more walnutty than I currently am. Um, I feel like I'm still too fresh-faced. There we are. I think we're tackling all of, uh, all of the uh, big issues. And about we're going to talk about the falling uh, levels of marriage... And uh, is the pen mightier than the keyboard? Should we all be writing, uh, doing handwriting? Uh, first, let's talk about... Uh, and it's obviously, it was a shocking thing when it happened in June uh, last year, but it's come back in onto the front pages because of uh, the sentencing of the man responsible for, for killing three people in Nottingham last year, Valdo Calocane, sentenced to an indefinite hospital order. That is now subject to a potential review, the sentence, uh, is being... Uh, uh, looked at the Attorney General considering whether judges should review uh, that sentence. Um, India, I, I hadn't realised this, but you you went to the funeral of one of the victims, Grace o- O'Malley Kumar. Yes, <clears throat> last um, last July, I'd written um, when the murders, when the children and Ian Coates were murdered, I'd written um, a little piece in the Sunday Times, and as last summer. Um, Grace O'Malley Kumar's mother wrote to me saying that they were moved by the piece and found some comfort in it. And would I like to come to the funeral? So, of course, I did. It was a full requiem mass in Westminster Cathedral. And honestly, it was the saddest funeral I've ever been to. I didn't know the family. I didn't know anybody there. But the um, the reason it was so sad was that 95% of the congregation were children or, you know, very young people. And I remember noticing as they all came in, all in floods of tears, I remember noticing that they were so young that they they were wearing, they were all wearing what looked like school shoes, you know, clumpy black shoes that you wear at school because they didn't, they were too young to have a pair of black shoes that would be suitable for a funeral. So that was incredibly sad. Everything about it was incredibly sad. And what was also incredibly sad was that the eulogy given by her father was wonderful but it and then it stopped because they were so young, you know. It just stopped. She ran out of life, and he ran out of eulogy, and it was just. And her little brother spoke very beautifully as well. But 
you got such a terrible, terrible sense of these shining, hopeful, beautiful lives being cut short. It was, it was, I'll never forget it. It's, you're so right when you when you think about those those small things that, that hammer home just how young they were, and then it feels like the families of the three victims put their faith in the the criminal justice system, and and obviously the man responsible was was caught. But then what we've we've found out since is that he's fallen off the sort of the radar of the authorities. Then there's this, this, I mean, it's a horrible thing, this sort of technicality argument about how they found out he wasn't being prosecuted for murder but for manslaughter on the basis of uh, diminished responsibility. And, and they, they sort of feel like they're, they're sort of almost going through it all over again. They're being, they feel like they, they've been let down again, India. Yeah, the whole thing has clearly been grossly mishandled <clears throat> and they were lots of opportunities for the police to step in. I mean, I do think the flip side of the story is about mental health care provision and how, you know, the, there just isn't there just isn't enough going on. People are falling through and falling off the radar with occasionally completely horrendous consequences. So there's that. But I feel so sorry for the families. They clearly feel robbed of the verdict they wanted. And um, as far as I can see, they only found out last week that... Um, that the, the thing had been downgraded to manslaughter. I did, the rest I can't really comment on because he is clearly extremely mentally unwell, mm. this man. And I don't think that the solution to anything is to put somebody chronically mentally unwell in a prison because, you know, how does that work? So I don't know. But it, the whole thing is just so distressing. Um, James, sort of zooming out a bit for me, it's a reminder that when we talk about mental health services being overstretched, under-resources, mm. under-resourced, it's not about millennials being a bit sad about having to go into the office five days a week. This this is the front line of what happens if if the criminal justice system, mental health, NHS don't have the resources and the wherewithal to keep across people they need to be keeping across. Yeah, exactly. And I think it's that bit of mental health that's, you know, less, you know, easy to think about. I've written a bit about, I sort of touched on some mental health stuff recently and spoken to some doctors and psychologists and stuff in the last few weeks. And I think that kind of came up a bit was that the kind of conversation, you know, openness about mental health, you know, Prince Harry's anxiety, whatever, that we're having, which is obviously a good thing, never really tends to touch on stuff like this that much. And there was uh, one doctor I spoke to who said that his heart kind of sinks whenever there's another mental health awareness week because, you know, a lot of people you know, who maybe, whose needs aren't that urgent will, you know, come and, you know, volunteer their problems. But you're not mm -hmm. really reaching those people whose problems are so important and deep that they're not going to mm. come to you because of Mental Health Awareness Week. And he sort of, I think, was feeling a bit anxious that the priorities are a bit back to front and, you know, the really serious, horrible stuff that is less good, you know, less easy to think about is often missed, I think. Yeah, there's a figure in the Times today. 120 people each year are killed by people with mental illnesses and you know well, there was sorry, sorry to interrupt no, there, no. Was the, there was there the, was the case in norfolk recently where um four people were found dead in a house including two children and the man who appears to be the perpetrator they're not looking for anybody else had actually phoned 999 and said i'm really i'm you know i need to talk i need help i'm not i'm not feeling right in my head and they told him to call 111 that was the day before i think so you know 
the system is not working and terrible, terrible, terrible things happen as a consequence. And I think it's so true that, you know, Mental Health Awareness Day trivialises these really serious, mm. profound, complicated, naughty, difficult things. You know, it's not about taking taking a mental health day off work because you've got anxiety. There are people who are really, really sick and whose actions just, you know, create catastrophes. Yeah, and in fact, the so the in the case of Callocane in in uh, Nottinghamshire, Nottinghamshire Healthcare said that he, that he was under their care between May 2020 and September 2022, which was what nine months before uh, before he killed three people in Nottingham. Uh, but they said if a patient no longer engages with our services and support, and they do not meet criteria to be detained under the Mental Health Act, they are discharged back to the care of their GP. And we could be referred to our services any time. So, you know, but then it's one of those things, if, if the patient isn't engaging, that could be as much about the problems with their mental health. But anyway, it's a it's an incredibly tragic tragic story. So thank you, India, for sharing that, that um, uh, well, terrible memory of going to the funeral um, last year. And there's lots of uh, coverage, of course, uh, online at thetimes.co.uk. Let's look at something uh, else now. Fewer than half of adults are married or civil partners for the first time. Uh, James, when are you going to tie the knot? Uh, not, not, not imminently. Uh, I mean, it's kind of interesting. I was thinking about this. The less common it becomes, the more sort of um, it feels like you're making a statement by doing it. And I wonder if this is part of the kind of overall trend. Because something I always think about the prospect of getting married is that I don't know. I'd feel like I was trying to drawing attention to myself or doing something slightly out of the blue because I don't really know many people who've got married, and I can imagine that that decline is a slightly self-reinforcing thing when literally everybody does it, everybody else does it. But you know, I've only got a couple of friends who've got married. And if I feel like if I suddenly decided to, I'd be like, I don't know, trying to be... Do you, do you think you'd be looking like you were going against the norm? Maybe, yeah, maybe That's somewhat. It would just be that. a bit, maybe just feel a bit... I mean, I'm sure people I'm will... Actually, I'm not actually trying to get you to propose I, on that. Yeah, no, no, no. Um, I mean, maybe I'm a bit of a, a, a bit of a sheep, but um, it's, maybe when more of my friends do get married, it'll feel more normal, but I'm currently would feel a bit like I was doing something that nobody else I know is doing. Yeah. It would be a bit like, why are you... Why? What do you think, India? Does it matter? I suppose there's a question. It's an it's a, it's a interesting landmark to pass, but does it matter? I think it does matter if you have children together and you later separate, which is a really uncheerful thing to say about marriage. I like marriage. I'm for it. But, but I think if you have kids together and own property together, you basically you don't have any rights. So unless you're separating from an ex-husband who is civilised and kind and benign... It, can, it could technically become quite problematic. So for that reason alone, for kind of, I mean, it's a really unromantic reason. And there are lots of romantic, more romantic reasons to get married. But, but as insurance, I think it's probably quite a good idea. India, you, I, you strike me as somebody who likes a nice pen. I love a nice pen. <laughs> See, I knew you would. I love a nice pen and I love a letter and I love a postcard. I like all handwritten communications, but I can't write for very long with a nice pen. I can write maybe... Two sides of A4, but my thoughts feel like they're much clearer when I see them on a, on a laptop screen. So when you write your books, do you type I them? couldn't do it longhand. I, no. I just couldn't. People do, incredibly. A woman called Jill Mansell writes on those yellow right, legal yeah, yeah. pads, you know. But um, no, I couldn't do that. It, I, I find the screen orders, oh, it feels like the screen orders my thoughts more. Yeah, because basically the, the, there's a story that says scientists have discovered that handwriting is better than typing for our brains. Uh, it sparks far greater range of complexity of connections within the brain if you're using a pen rather than ba bashing away at your column, James, on a keyboard. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you can you can sort of see it, although I have to say I'm with India. I remember 
writing an exams just wasn't wasn't oh, excruciating. Yeah. It takes forever to write a word. And remember those horrible little um, lumps you get in your finger where you just rub away. I mean, maybe I was very yeah. overkeen at exams, but like you'd rub away at your, your kind of index finger and you have this pink lump on it at the end of exam season. Yeah, I don't miss it at all. And lit- I mean, I, I like the idea of a nice pen and doing, but I've got yeah. quite bad writing. I, mean, I was thinking, when do I ever ever write anything by hand? Probably. Have you got like a child's a child's handwriting? Because I really notice that in younger people. Yeah, I cut my not, I, no. completely. Inco- I look like yeah, a four year old's written. Like it. a five year old. Yeah. Mine, mine yeah. just looks like some like cross between a, a pensioner and a GP. With I a think bit you're of doing shorthand. With a bit of shorthand thrown in. Looks somewhat regular. Um, uh, Somebody messaged in actually saying they sent three postcards when I was away in June. Two of the recipients couldn't read my handwriting. One of those recipients was someone I'd been on a few dates with and I thought our relationship was going very well. She dumped me when I got home. I didn't know that I was dumped because of my terrible handwriting, but I'm going to type everything from now on. (laughs) Uh, It was very good. Uh, Right, uh, go on then, we should do this. Yeah, tonight is the final... Of season two of The Traitors. Don't worry, we're not going to do any spoilers. We're not doing spoilers. Because I know some of you are watching it and binging it or that. But James, you've written about the groupthink that you think that Traitors demonstrates. And we've got a, uh, a former Traitor contestant, Kira Thompson. Uh, hi, Kieran. How you doing? Good morning. Now, Kieran, I apologise. I've not watched the first series, so I, no spoilers for the first series oh, either. <laughs> uh, James, set out your theory, then Kieran can tell you why you're wrong. Uh, well, okay, so my theory is that we all watch Traitors and I think the reaction to this season at least has been, oh, all these people are idiots, they didn't know what they're doing, you know, it's also obvious from the outside, but actually I think it kind of demonstrates uh, the perils of groupthink to which I think we're all subject to. And when you're in there, um, you know, there's a really, there's actually a really other good piece by this, uh, by Henry Manson, the FT, saying that t- a test that showed that about human beings detecting lies, we're really bad at it, we're basically kind of 50% on whether we can tell someone's lying or not. And therefore, it becomes this kind of slightly awful popularity contest. Uh, and I kind of think, none, you know, none of us are above that. We're sort of all, you know, guilty of these of these biases. Do you think that, that fits, Kieran, with your experience? Yeah, I mean, in, in the context of the show, there's, there's, there's levels to the game. And I think you have to... If you want to, if you're too vocal early on, you're going to be killed off, as it's been evident this season. If you start challenging or, or making your accusations early, you'll be killed off early. Um, and the name of the game is to survive. So you're absolutely right. There is a herd mentality. You, there's there's time to talk. There's times to sit back, as you've seen with Jazz um, this season. And there's times to yeah go with the go with the crowd because if you don't you're going to be isolated in that particular scenario um, you probably won't make it to breakfast. But it's interesting because sometimes watching it, um, it you sort of think like, it's like every meeting you've ever been in where yeah. everyone's sort of sitting around and somebody says oh I think we should do this and then everyone goes oh yeah 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 that's what I thought as well. So you didn't think that a minute ago. What's going? <laughs> and it's just sort of you know because you want to but in this case survive. But you know in a corporate world you want to survive as well, did you? It's that really interesting thing where, obviously, on first meeting a group of people, you're you're more drawn to some than to others, and you feel that you like, even though you don't know them, that you like some people more than others. And I think the the, the trickiness in the traitors is putting that completely aside. So we're not going to do any spoilers. So I'm going to not say any names, but there is somebody today. Tonight is the final. There is somebody who likes somebody else so much that that they have complete blind faith yeah, that they're yeah, a goodie, yeah. that they're a faithful. And 
it's not actually based on anything apart from the fact that they like each other. Yeah, They're yeah, yeah. of a similar age and they get on and da da da. So so it's so difficult to push that aside in any context. I love the traitors. Honestly, the final tonight is like the point of my Friday. I'm so excited. <laughs> We're really excited in our house. Kieran, when you were doing it, did you did you feel like you were behaving differently because it was a TV show? Um, or, and have you sort of changed the way you approach people? Are you more suspicious of people since? <laughs> um, you do. You you in the context of the game, you have to sort of adjust a little bit and maybe do things you normally wouldn't do in normal walk of life. That's that's a fact. You have to sort of going back to that comment a moment ago. You have to sort of if you go with the flow, you build alliances while you're there as well. So you have to work as a bit of a team. But yeah, no, it's made me. Um, it's not made me not trust people anymore, but it's made me uh, really listen to what they're saying, read body language more. I mean, for my job, I do sales presentations. And so I'm really sort of scanning people a lot more than I ever did before when in the show. So it has it has left its mark on me. That's, yeah. that's a fact. God, then I'll come around to all of you then. Without naming names, who who's going to win tonight? The Traitors or the Faithfuls? James? I'm waiting. I'm like five episodes behind you. I'm not close what's going on. <laughs> Kieran? It's very, it's very close. I think my... my it would appear that the traitors do have it in the bag, um, but as we know, twists and turns he's can on, turn that at the last minute. The India, are you going to answer the question? Who's going to win? Um, I think uh, <laughs> one particular traitor is going to win, yeah. and I quite want them to, and this yeah. makes me feel quite morally conflicted. India Knight and James Marriott, and you can read them, of course, in The Times and The Sunday Times every week. Just get yourself a subscription at thetimes.co.uk. Up next, it's The Politics of Language. 
But now the Democrats have taken back control of the word freedom in the fight against abortion bans, dropping talk of pro-life to instead paint Donald Trump and the Republicans as being anti-freedom. Let there be no mistake. The person most responsible for taking away this freedom in America is Donald Trump. So today, we take a look at the power of language on both sides of the Atlantic and how you can take on a political opponent by taking their words right out of their mouths. The former president, he intended for them to take your freedom. This is a story not about the policy of abortion in America, but the politics of campaigning and the lessons for politicians in the UK too. So in America, just under two years ago, the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade, allowing individual states to decide on abortion issues. For years, those in favour of abortion rights spoke about being pro-choice, while those opposed were pro-life. Now, supporters of abortion are casting themselves as freedom fighters, accusing Donald Trump, who appointed the Supreme Court judges, and anti-abortion Republicans of taking away not women's rights to choose, but freedom to decide. And it seems it's working. There have been seven statewide ballots on tightening abortion access since Roe v. Wade was overturned, including in Ohio, Kansas, and Kentucky, all of which tend to be conservative. All seven states rejected it. Joe Biden, as we have heard, has started talking about the freedom of women. And his Democratic Vice President, Kamala Harris, is embarking on a Fight for Reproductive Freedoms tour. The architect of this new script to take back freedom from the right is political strategist and pollster Rachel Bitterkoffer. The rhetorical shift that you're seeing Democrats make it's about adopting some of the rights techniques of stakes and values framing, right? So when you look at the rights rhetoric, it's, it's intentionally hyperbolic. Like for example, we have a migrant crisis on the southern border of America right now. It is a big crisis. It's, it's burdening the border states quite badly. But the thing it is not is an invasion, okay? It's not an invasion by South Americans trying to overtake America. But right-wing rhetoric is very focused on that. And you see, because of that, Republican voters responding by raiding the issue of immigration. We're seeing this in New Hampshire and Iowa amongst Republican primary voters. Immigration is their number one issue, right? Um, certainly um, with this strategy and, and what we're seeing is, is an intentional change in rhetoric, adopting of something, you know, you contrast choice. Well, choice sounds like um, going to a drive-thru, right? Uh, ordering something. Right? Choice is very minimalistic and very selfish, especially when you consider its opposite, pro-life, pro-choice, right? So the um, abortion movement, in the 60s, 70s, settled into that choice life paradigm, the right kind of pushed them into. And by its very nature, pro-life is, is superior to pro-choice rhetorically. When you talk about life, right, you're talking about something that's very high stakes, very important. When you talk about choice, again, a minimalist. So the switch to freedom is about getting people to understand what that choice symbolizes, that choice is about freedom, and, and that's why you see this rhetorical shift. Rachel, it's so interesting because I suppose if you're not pro-life, it sounds like you're anti-life, which is obviously not a great place to be politically. 
So what's happened? The issue of abortion and pro-life, pro-choice has been around for a long time. Is it just the Supreme Court overturning Roe v. Wade has refocused minds? That actually people who thought this maybe was settled for a long time have suddenly found that you need a new way to refight the fight? The moment that that Roe was no longer the law of the land because America has like about 30 states that are heavily dominated by Republicans, that the moral the moral advantage on that issue flipped around. Okay, and it stopped. It was going to inevitably. And and now we're here. Right. Uh, A couple years into the into the reality. What I said initially, what's going to do is it's going to take the moral issue and it's not going to make it about hypothetical babies. That could, you know, always we're going to have these great lives if only selfish women would let them live. Now it becomes about the women, right? The moral politics is now about women dying, women getting suffering, you know, being told they have to go into sepsis before they can get, you know, a medically needed abortion, whatever, right? It becomes about women's lives, not about hypothetical baby lives. So it was always, in my opinion, going to be a, a titanic landscape altering effect in and we saw that in 2022 when Republicans greatly underperformed what they were expected to do in that midterm cycle and we're going to see that in 2024 too because now the uh, morality around abortion politics is is heavily advantaged for us and it sounds like it's working where since Roe v Wade was overturned where there have been those referendums, where people have been able to vote on this, those fights are being won as a result of this shifting the language. Even in quite deep Republican, right-leaning states, parts of the US where, you know, you wouldn't necessarily expect it, those battles are being won specifically by talking about the freedom of the women rather than pro-choice. Yes, and like, you know, that's exactly right. And my new book that comes out, Hit Them Where It Hurts, it, um, it focuses quite a bit on 2022 and how we successfully use the repeal of Roe to wedge abortion politics, to frame it as freedom, and to, and to provide what you're going to see in 24 is this big argument about dictating, believe it or not, guys, in America, 2024 is going to be about should we go with a dictatorship with Donald Trump or should we continue the messy and often unsatisfying experiment of democracy. That's what the Biden campaign's frame is going to be. That's what the frame in the media is going to be. And, you know, when we think about, um, you know, how, how, how effective that messaging could be, what Roe did was it, it, it took that, that abstract concept of freedom, Republicans coming for your freedom, you know, dem- anti-democratic stuff, and it made it concrete, right? It gave people a tangible example, especially because for decades, and even these justices, these personal justices that overturned Roe are all on tape saying Roe is settled precedent, right? So what it has done is like, you know, as a strategist, I'm arguing to voters, you can't trust the Republicans are going to do a national abortion ban. Don't listen to what they say. They're going to lie to you, but they're going to do a national abortion ban. It is much more believable because they already did something that they had sworn they would never do, which was take our constitutional freedom away. It's fascinating. So your book is called Hit Them Where It Hurts. Now, look, that's a long way from the sort of Michelle Obama, when they go low, we go high, we've got the moral high ground, we're the good guys, really, all that sort of rhetoric that actually get... You get from the left in America, but you also get it from the left in the UK as well. Your point is, instead of sort of turning your back to it and finding all a bit squeamish, you need to reach in 
take their language, take their arguments, their rhetoric, and you turn that to your advantage. Exactly. I mean, and, you know, you know, shameless marketing you know, plug, but the slogan for the book I mean, is when they go low, we got to hit them where it hurts. OK, we can't go high. We don't. The, the, the part of understanding that that struggles with the American left and with, I'm sure, the foreign left is is a bias, a, a cognitive bias that we have that can't appreciate that other people are not us, even though we know that we don't really humans know that. Right. And so our assumption is that everybody like us knows who the speaker of the house is. Everybody like us understands the Republican party controls the house. Everybody like us knows that what that means for Biden's agenda for this and that. And that is that reality could reality couldn't be further from that. Okay. Like, so the first half of the book, is about getting Americans especially to understand the extent of low civic literacy and political knowledge, which is an interest issue. Yes, voter suppression matters. Yes, it's harder to vote in some places and the turnout goes lower there. But at the end of the day, America's dying democracy isn't dying because of the politicians. It's dying because its people have neglected to tend the garden of democracy, have in fact been cultured to feel morally superior to not engage in politics, right? And so the first half of that book is about getting people to understand why the Republican tactics work so much better than our stuff. Our stuff is based on a flawed assumption about the voters, and that is that the voters already know that stuff. They don't know it. They don't know anything about Trump's criminal indictments. They don't know who Mike Johnson is. They barely probably even knew who Kevin McCarthy was, even though he had years of name ID and national news. That's the clay that we're working with. It's a rough clay, and we can either work with that clay or against it. The old system has always worked against it, and the system I'm advocating for it, 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 it takes that and turns it into a, an asset and not a liability. There's Rachel Bitskoffer, the political strategist who's been working with the Democrats on their, their use of the word freedom. And her book, Hidden Where It Hurts, is out on, I think it's uh, June the 6th, uh, February the 6th, February the 6th. We've heard about what's happening in America where the te- Democrats are trying to retake freedom from the Republicans. Let's look now at the UK, where parties are also trying some rhetorical cross-dressing, where Boris Johnson successfully promised to... Take back control. Now Keir Starmer is trying to reclaim that rhetoric. So we will embrace the take back control message, but we'll turn it from a slogan into a solution, from a catchphrase into change. In a moment, Chris Ward, who was Keir Starmer's Deputy Chief of Staff, which included prepping him for speeches and PMQs. But first, Sir Craig Oliver, the former Head of Communication for David Cameron, on the power of using the language of your opponents. Look, I think there's a number of ways in which it's done. And I think what often it is, is about trying to plug into the psychology of the electorate and say something that plugs into something really deep. And one of my earliest memories of this is Margaret Thatcher talking about how difficult things are going to be. We didn't promise you instant sunshine. We pointed out over and over again that a nation can't accelerate downhill for years and then jam the brakes on and suddenly return to prosperity as though the past had never happened. We had to start by slowing down before turning round and beginning the long, slow climb back up the hill to recovery. 
Change can't be painless. And I remember her saying that the medicine will be bitter. And she was appealing to people to say, look, I believe there is a sickness here. And the only way to cure that is by doing something that is going to actually be bitter and a bit painful. And that was plugging into the psychology of the electorate, which believed actually Britain was the sick man of Europe and had a load of problems. So she understood that and found a metaphor that really, really plugged into that. Of course, if she was working with something that people just didn't believe that Britain was sick, it wouldn't have worked. So there's got to be a degree of truth or authenticity on it. And it's not just a case that you can magically come up with a form of words, assert it, and people will automatically hook into it. But I suppose what you're saying is that actually, by saying this is going to hurt, you deny your opponents the chance to say that thing's going to hurt. If you own the fact that, you know, no pain, no gain, you're slightly disarming your opponent's ability to say this is going to be painful. So you're acknowledging a truth and you're also preparing people and laying the ground and saying, look, I told you this was going to be difficult. And when it is difficult, you can point out, look, I set out a path, I set out a journey and it was going to be difficult and it is difficult, but we are curing a problem here. So I think that worked for me incredibly well because it was a positioning your opponents, as you say, in a certain way and saying, look, you know, of course, it's going to be difficult. I accept that. And also very, very cleverly plugging into the psychology of understanding that if people think that they're sick, that it's not going to just be straightforward curing them, that you may actually have to take some pain in it. I mean, Chris, probably one of the most overanalyzed political phrases of recent years is take back control. And obviously, what that did was it took the unknown, the uncertain, or the warnings that this was going to be unsafe and complicated and difficult and dangerous, and actually saying, no, this is the, this is the controlling thing. This is the, the bit which will bring stability and, and calm. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, when I was working with Starmer on this before, he, he, would, he latched onto this phrase. He used to refer to it as a Heineken phrase. And he would try and add it in at some part at the back of speeches, even when he was doing Brexit early on, to show that he didn't think this should just be a, a concept that the right used and that both the Leave side used and the Conservative Party used. He thought that it, you know, it reached parts of the electorate, you know, that, that Labour hadn't hit for a long time. And I think that's why, as leader, he's tried to move into that terrain. He's talked about introducing a, a take-back control bill and lots of other ways of trying to neutralise it, to use it for Labour's benefit. And I think that actually goes to another thing that you see in Starmer's leadership and his team is that they don't think there are as many, you know, right-wing concepts and left-wing concepts. They think there are contested concepts that they should be able to win on. And that's why Starmer always talks about bringing Labour back to voters or bringing Labour back to communities. He, he thinks that things like nation, family, institutions, conser- the idea of conserving the country itself shouldn't be off limits for Labour. And take back control is one of those ones. And that's why I think he's one of those slogans that he thinks hits into something that Labour's been missing for quite a long time. And I suppose we also see that, Chris, with sort of patriotism this week, him speaking up for the National Trust and the RNLI. Uh, actually, you know, because lots of people have pointed this out before, that even the very concept of Brexit was quite an unconservative thing. You, you know, normally you leave things alone. The Conservatives have blown everything up. I'm the one on the side of sort of old fashioned institutions, whether that's the flag or charities, whatever it might be. Yeah. And he's 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 said it this week. He said it previously back in speeches when I was doing it with him. He, he'd say that time that the for a party called the Conservatives, they don't really believe in conserving much. And he thinks that the Labour Party can speak to that. And this goes to this bit I've I've said before to you, Matt, that 
Starmer doesn't really come from a particular part of the Labour Party. He didn't grow up in the Labour Party. He grew up outside it. And he doesn't think things like family, uh, the rule of law, the union should be right-wing concepts or conservative concepts that Labour should be uneasy about. He thinks they're British concepts. And he thinks that's why his Labour Party should be able... I can see Craig laughing at that slightly. But um, I, he thinks they are British concepts. And if the Labour Party isn't able to talk on that terrain... I was just, I wasn't, I wasn't laughing, Chris. I was just sort of smiling slightly ruefully because I think that as advisors in politics, what you're often trying to do when you set the language is, uh, or use a phrase, is also deal with a weakness. So I think one of the weaknesses with, um, with Keir Starmer is the perception that he's a North London metropolitan liberal lawyer who doesn't really particularly like the royal family terribly much. So the natural instinct is to start saying, I tell you what, I'll start talking about patriotism and I will try and find ways to demonstrate that in fact I am actually a patriot and I think that that is actually the point here is what so much of this is about is how are you framing the landscape of politics how are you framing the conversation so even a phrase that's as boring as the deficit became the natural point part of the conversation for years in British politics because we refused to do a press release or an interview or whatever without using the phrase a deficit and saying that it was a huge problem. And so much so it became a problem that when Ed Miliband made a conference speech and failed to mention it. With the deficit paragraph, sure. because it's printed, isn't sure, it? Sure. Did you forget that paragraph? Yeah, I didn't do one part of the speech and I added in other bits. He was absolutely vilified for it. So it's about making sure that the conversation has to be put on your terms and is framed as you want it to be framed. The other thing that occurs to me, you speak about your, your time in government, Craig, is I remember, was it 2012, Ed Miliband did a big One Nation speech. One Nation, a country where everyone has a stake. One Nation, a country where prosperity is fairly shared. One Nation, where we have a shared destiny, a sense of shared endeavour and a common life that we lead together. That is my vision of One Nation. That is my vision of Britain. That is the Britain we must become. Yeah, I think he was in Manchester. It was quite near where Disraeli had done his One Nation speech. It was all very interesting briefing to sort of observer columnists. But unless you've got sort of concrete policy to back that up and speak to that, it was obviously all addressing, again, I suppose, the, the thing you were talking about, addressing his weakness. He was seen as on the left of the party, so he's going to wrap himself in the One Nation phrase. But the problem is most normal people probably don't know what that means. And it yeah. ends up, if you're not careful, it becomes a phrase that anyone can use. Well, I think that's true. But I also think that the danger is that it becomes just the conversation between journalists and politicians and people who follow this very, very closely. And they think, oh, that's interesting. Ed Miliband's trying to nick the One Nation label from the Conservatives and wear the political clothes of his uh, opponents. And actually, it doesn't really cut through elsewhere. The brilliance of things like Take Back Control or Margaret Thatcher talking about, um, you know, the medicine will be bitter or you turn if you want to, is that, that actually they really cut through with real people. They feel incredibly authentic and they actually really frame things very, very cleverly. So it's got to speak to the broad public far more than it has just to the political cognoscenti. So Chris, what do you think? Keir Starmer needs to be doing now in the next sort of seven, eight, nine months. Should he hammer home more of that take back control stuff? If, you know, if in America, the Democrats are trying to reclaim freedom from the Republicans, or is it actually because it's a different thing? He's so far ahead in the polls. 
don't draw attention to yourself might be a, a, a better approach. Well, look, he was he was five points down when I left, and he's twenty points up now. Uh, Matt, doesn't <laughs> need my advice uh, too much on what to do in the next six nine months. But I, I do think the key thing actually is is defining himself more clearly. I think you have a you have a thing in the moment where pretty much everyone thinks Starmer's going to win, apart from himself and uh, McSweeney. But you know, pretty much everyone thinks he's going to win, and no one knows what he's going to do uh, when he wins. And that I think defining that, you know, defining what a decade of a decade of Starmer and Labour in power would deliver. That's really the task of the next next six months, I think, to make that clear in voters' minds and to get ready for, for what might happen to deliver that. My personal view is that that is best done by getting to the politics that's closest to Starmer himself. I think some of the language he's using at the moment has become a bit abstract for voters. It is, if you were to ask me what the opposite of take-back control is, it's probably mission-driven government to deliver sustained growth in all parts of the G7. Uh, he needs to get that, I think, back into a way that voters might understand and become both definitional and campaign ready. And I think that's the task of the next six to nine months. Uh, and then it's delivering that in government. I think you'll see a lot more of Starmer's own politics, hopefully, in that in that six to nine months. But that would be my advice, Matt. And Craig, for Rishi Sunak, one, I mean, the thing that he seems to have done is sort of reach into the language of reform and Nigel Farage and the stop the boats, you know, and some of what reform's pitch now is sort of almost interchangeable with Rishi Sunak's pitch. What he doesn't seem to have is a way of speaking to the people who the Tories are losing to the Labour Party. Yeah, I think that's right. I think he's been casting around for a good few months now to find a kind of language that will really cut through and work. You know, we've seen him saying, look, I'm the change candidate. We've seen I'm, I'm the stability person. I'm the stop the votes person. And none of it really is quite working. I suppose the truth is, again, and I keep repeating the point is, it requires authenticity. Who is Rishi Sunak really? And does it sound credible in his mouth? And I think that that's what he's got to try and do is find something that's actually credible to him, because actually, in reality, people can see through you. And what was interesting about the 92 election was John Major going out with his soapbox. When the demonstrators are pushed to one side and the ordinary people of Britain speak, I have no doubt that the Conservative Party and the Conservative government will have five more years of work in office. Thank you for being here today. Thank you. And being John Major and playing up to the slightly boring character that everybody knew he was but being diligent and facing people down and that authenticity helped him in the end and I think Rishi Sunak is struggling for that authenticity he's perhaps listening too much to people like me and Chris and not being himself enough <laughs> yeah let's stop listening to you uh, while I've got you Craig uh, you, we've talked about this before but your podcast series is back who've you got on the news series yeah, it's series three of Desperately Seeking Wisdom, and I'm very lucky to talk to some very famous people about moments in their life when they've been vulnerable and what they've learned. This series, we've got Rory Stewart coming out on Monday. Great interview with him. We've got Emily Maitlis, Clive Myrie. I've just interviewed Rory Bremner, talked to the playwright James Graham. They're all really interesting interviews, and, you know, Desperately Seeking Wisdom, look at it wherever you get your podcasts. Craig Oliver there, always a spinner, still getting his plug in. Genuinely fascinating, and I think now having listened to that, I'll be really conscious listening to politicians about the language that they are using. Don't forget you can get in touch by emailing me, matt at times.radio. But for now, for me, Matt Cholly, it's quite... This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. 
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.